Welcome to Designing the Robot Revolution. Our guest today is Raphael Hofstetter, the founder of Devantro, a company dedicated to the development of robotics. These humanoid robotic avatars provides a fascinating exploration into how we can extend our presence and senses through technology. But Raphael's work isn't just about the technology, it's about the humans interacting with it. The robotics are designed to make our interactions with technology more natural and intuitive, reflecting our actions and senses. In today's conversation, we'll discuss how these robots are designed and developed and the unique challenges that arise when trying to mimic humans. We'll get a unique insight into Raphael's observations and learnings from seeing people interact with their robots. So join us today as we take a closer look at the human side of robotics. This is Designing the Robot Revolution. Enjoy! I saw you have some earlier versions of the robodies. Can you tell us about how you've been using them and the kind of proof of concepts that have been used at the moment? We started by building musculoskeletal robots. So robots that imitate the human musculoskeletal system to some extent. Of course, there's a lot of things about the human body that we cannot replicate. The main idea is to have the muscle and the skeleton, basically muscles that can only pull and a skeleton that is rigid and articulate, basically try to articulate those two together. In many ways, it's almost more like a puppet, but it's a closer model than what we usually do in robotics, where we have motors in the joints. We have very nonlinear systems. You also have very overdefined systems. So you don't have one motor with your freedom, but you have many muscles pulling at the same bones, but in different directions. And you get a lot of this complexity. And also you have muscles wrapping around bones, which is also an effect we have in the human body. And then there's other things that is not there, of course, like the fact that our muscles are bulging. So you, in your shoulder blade, you have muscles. And once you contract them, they displace other muscles. And these, of course, have effects on the control. That's things we don't have and also don't. Um, which are not easy to build, but I think it was an interesting first step in this direction. And now recently we've really started to do that as the second step on how can we best connect robotic bodies to humans and as you could tell a presence mm-hmm. and really also trying to find use cases for how do you commercialize a system that connects a human to an avatar? What might be use cases where this effect that there's a human on the other side truly adds value? And it's not just a necessity because we just don't know how to do this autonomously. So one of the places you were using it was in an elderly care environment. We all know that the wealthier societies on this planet are very quickly aging. We're also not producing enough offsprings. So in essence, this leads very logically to a lack of physical labor. We just don't have enough people anymore to do the physical things that require physical work. If you talk about with people that are not in care about care, we have all this kind of rosy idea that there's humans and they're nicely care for people. And there should only be people there that do this because it's really about human connection. And I totally agree about the human connection part, but the reality is not that there's always someone there. The reality is that an average person is alone 95%. It's totally normal to turn on the TV just so you hear voices because that's the only voices you're going to hear the whole day. We're seeing this problem of not enough service people, all these service jobs right now that are struggling to find people and caring is one of those. And caring, I think, is especially difficult because it's a very complex thing. Every care situation is different. Every every life is different. Every person that is in need of care has a different story, a different background. They also have different bodily ailments. 
especially then when it goes, for example, into dementia, it's really important to understand the story of a person or the life of a person because this informs a lot of the ways they behave. And that's really what makes a very solid, I think, wall against automation. So that's a use case where for the foreseeable future, I don't see robots really breaking in. Although there's a lot, and that's quite ironic because there's a lot of talking about care robots. Yeah. But if you go and look how much care, like care robots are deployed, it's actually very little, very I few. Know. There was a study recently that basically looked at this. And I think one core difficulty is that it's really hard to deploy robots in use cases where that aren't like as repetitive as we are used to for robots. And... So what was happening is that the amount of time that the caregivers saved by deploying the robots was mostly eaten up by the fact that they had to care for the robots. So they had to deploy the systems, they had to be trained for those systems, and so on. So that creates quite a bit of complexity. I guess one thing, and I think the other thing is also that what the robots can do nowadays, uh, it's very limited. So either they're these kind of entertainment and companion robots that in a way it's, a, it's then it's a competitor to a tv the, the interactive game or something like that it's just a robot a physical and it does some activation and the acceptance is pretty high so people elderly use these systems when they are there they are happy to work with these systems and they also think integrate them very well but the added value for those who are paying is not obvious enough. And additionally, deploying systems in care homes, they are not, especially in Germany, the most digitalized. So many don't even have Wi-Fi. So one core problem that you have deploying these systems is there's simply no connectivity. So either you have it completely offline or then, and that's, I think it's another issue in this regard. And then the other kind of robot that have seen some deployments are like basically transport systems. So they transport stuff around a hospital or a care home. And then at both ends, there's a human, one like putting things on that have to go somewhere, and the other then taking it off and, for example, delivering food to someone. And again, it's not so easy to really integrate this smoothly in a workflow such that it's it obviously adds so much value. And then especially in a setting where everyone is already super stressed out, like everyone is already, and this, you probably noticed this comic of a bunch of people in the stone age putting a square wheel and then someone with a round wheel there is like, hey, look, I have this great invention. Uh, and everyone is, yeah, I don't have time for this. We, we're, we're busy over here. And I think that's quite a bit of that. They don't actually even have the time to look at uh, these kind of innovations so that we have to find different ways of breaking in. It seems to me that you think that these two versions of robots within elderly care are a bit lacking in terms of what they can achieve. What do you think would be the better near-term vision for robots in elderly care? Like, How should we think about that? I don't think they're lacking. They're, so in robotics, traditionally, if you try to find a use case for a robot, you need to go and find a use case that is extremely limited and very repetitive. Um, otherwise, you have too much variance and all the, the things around it, integration, complexity, and so on, this is going to kill you and it's going to kill the business model. Hmm. And those are just the two approaches that at least were capable of making a dent, at least of getting into these complex systems because these are very complex, very, very 
human systems, a lot of humans in there, right? They're doing a mm. lot of things and it's a very social system. So I don't think they're lacking. I just think this is basically what has been possible up to date. Is that changing? I think one, one thing that's definitely changing is the caregiver shortage is getting worse. Care is extremely expensive. And then now in Germany, at least the salaries have been increased, which makes it even harder and even more expensive to run these care homes. So the care homes are closing because it's just no longer available. So I think this pressure clearly helps for finding, sol- like forcing innovation to some extent and being, okay, how can we integrate robots and how can we use different systems? For example, there's a villain startup now that has a robot that drives to an elderly care home and checks with radar if the person is sleeping and in bed, which is a great idea because if you can help that person being where she needs to be and being and less walking around just for the sake of not knowing where she needs to be, I think that's a great use case. And that's also one that's very repetitive. It repeats every night. So I think we're going to be seeing more of these insular solutions in robotics. I think now with the recent development in large language models, I think we're going to see much smarter uh, entertainment robots. Basically, speech-to-text, text-to-speech are solved to a large extent. And then now we have also a way of for interesting text interaction. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. Personally, I'm a bit critical about these kind of robot companion approaches because I feel it's a band-aid on top of a shortage of a failure of society. Um, I totally see if someone is lonely and they find companionship with these robots, I this is great. And then if this helps the person, that's obviously something to support. But I think we should not make this a target as society. I think we should find ways of connecting people such that they're even in their old age still have ways of connecting to other people and be less bored and have ways of entertainment, be entertained, maybe also have cross-generational connections, more connections to the youngs. Also, everyone's going to be old at some point for now. So I think it's good to be aware of that this is part of society and not just try to lock this part of society away in home so we don't have to look at it. That seems to me like a thing that will come up in using technology in care situations a lot is the sort of weighing or whether we're, as you say, putting a Band-Aid on a problem or if we're actually solving the underlying issues. How do you work with those types of questions? What do you practically do to identify and then also handle that? It's very difficult because at the end of the day, it's... uh macro-social question. It's not something a single company can work on. And of course, we can have our opinion and being opinionated about how we implement this in our products or rather not implementing it. Uh, But as a company, you have to find things that work and that sell and you need to provide value to the end customers such that they're willing to pay for that. The way we are discovering these things is we're talking a lot to people. We're showing early prototypes. We're going out with doesn't matter how bad, and we have been doing this now all the time. So we have, I think by now, more than thirty to 40,000 recorded interactions with people where we've actually stood and saw how do they interact with a robot? What is it, what they expect? Why do certain pattern break? How can you reduce also the fear of these robots and so on? This, this is something that, that we spend a lot of time on. Could you tell us a little bit about the acceptance of having a robot take care of your elderly. So user acceptance and the robot, it's a very funny topic because 
the research on this is quite clear. Acceptance is not the core issue. Whenever elderly are starting to interact with these systems, what they use it. Like kids love it. Elders love it. Uh, there's a problem with a prejudiced society. So because everyone thinks that there's an acceptance problem, only once they try it out and realize, oh, this is actually being used. It's pretty cool. Huh? Okay. They start to understand that there's no acceptance problem. But I always say my biggest problem is their relatives that think their parents wouldn't want a robot. But if you go directly talk to the relative and, hey, look, I have this robot, they are actually quite excited about this. Because, again, and I think it, it also stems to some extent from, a, from an experience mismatch. As a relative, you don't actually experience the majority of the life of the person in need of care. Mm. Like you visit your parents, what, maybe uh, if they're in need of care once or twice a day or maybe one or a week even only, or even less, but the days are long and the people are lonely, but you don't see this, right? Because if whenever you as a person are with your parents, they're not lonely, that's a good time of the day. So you don't actually have this experience of understanding what the bad day is like and how big of a problem this is. You might get glimpse when the person says, oh, do you really already have to go? Or yeah, I'm so bored, I'm so lonely. And then mm. they start expressing it. I think it's one thing to, to hear it, but a totally other to experiencing it. Like this vast amounts of time where nobody is there, nobody cares whether you are there, and it doesn't matter what you do. And then keeping yourself busy in these times and doing, and, and I think this, especially for people who have been very social, and then they've seen their friend and family dying over time and become more distant, mm. and they get more and more lonely. I think it's retaxing. And one of the most salient points about this is when you see that very often when a couple has been together for decades, hmm. one of them dies, the other usually dies within a very short amount because this change of situation and this look, the purpose to live is gone. Yeah. And I think that's really why these systems are important and what else is going to drive acceptance. Hmm. But it's a good question. How do we overcome this notion that there's a problem? That is such a good highlighting of why this is important because yeah we're we don't want people to be alone for the entire day and not have anything to do that's absolutely horrible you spoke about the the hugging study can you tell me about that because i i think that's such a lovely example of yeah we started hugging our robots in 2019 it was an accident actually so we were at the fair was the mobile work congress and we were with a partner there and the interest about the robot was okay. It was just an exhibit. Like, it was just a thing that was there and people were like, okay. And I was like, okay, so we had all this effort with you guys. And, but there's not this kind of, uh, pull whatsoever. No, okay. We need a solution for this. And I thought, what about hugging? If you go to train stations, very often you see these teenagers with these free hugs, mm. just hugging people. And I was like, ah, oh, that's a great thing. We should do this with our robot. So we, I took a piece of cardboard, I wrote free hugs on it. We project, we programmed a trajectory where the robot would basically do this mm. and hugging motion. And on our remote control, we had one button where it would do this motion and then also trigger something like, ah, oh, you're a great hugger. Mm. And then we started people inviting to hugs and this totally exploded. We had just, I think 1,800 hugs just in three days. So wow. we really, we got tons of people doing this. And then we did it again later in 2019 at the CIE in China. Mm. Uh, also, it was a great success. People were queuing so they could get out of <laughs> <laughs> It's quite cool. It was nice. Uh, 
what we really saw, and then that's not just in the hugging iterations, but so robots are for when a person sees a robot for the first time, it's a foreign system. It has some resemblance of a human body, but you don't know how fragile it is. You don't know how expensive it is. You don't want to break it. No, it's a bit like you're standing in front of a supercar. Most people are like, oh, do I really touch this? I can't, I might break it. And also what is the right model for my brain to load, to, to interact with? And what we've saw is when we let people touch it, this sort of falls into place. It's very clear. Okay. So the model is just, A, this is safe to interact with. B, this doesn't do anything harmful to me. C, it interacting with it with a human being is probably the right model. And that's what we intuitively do because the only thing that we know that's a similar tool mm. from our actual non-technical real life, there's two ways we could think of. One is a pet and the other is another yep. human being that you could mind models that you could load. Um, I think there's a lot of value for the pet model because we are quite used to our pets not listening to us. Mm. So you can get away with a lot more. And that's one good reason to make robots not human-shaped. And if you do make them human-shaped, I think you should teleoperate them because we are expecting this kind of immediate communication interaction. Right. And then we have a, you have a nodding motion. You have this kind of signal so that the other side is there. They need to be there. Otherwise, it's irritating. And what we really wanted to show is that this hugging actually does that. And we had this sort of episodical. We saw it. We thought, okay, people, we have seen thousands of hugs and thousands of interactions. And we saw that whenever they started to interact and physically allowed to touch it, this kind of fear fell away. And then they were like, okay, this is a really cool system. It's so cute. And they started touching it. And mm -hmm. so what we did now at the Hanover Mesa is we requantified it. So we were doing a study where we asked people either before they hugged or after hugged. The hypothesis was that Hugging improved the, the user acceptance, mm. and it did. So we could show that overall the user acceptance goes up. We're looking into likability, so how much do you like the system? Freeness, so how spooky it is and how uncomfortable does it make you? And right. purchase intent. Could you imagine spending money on this and having this in your homes and around your life? And overall, we, we could show that this works. It was not so easy because already before the values were super high. Right. So we have like the base acceptance is already high. Uh, we had like, uh, we used a seven point Likert score and we were, we starting off, I think something like 5.4 or something. When you've been going out and interacting and having prototypes of the row bodies installed, how have you, how have they been used in these earlier prototypes? What's the use case? So the robotics that we had, especially also because of the musculoskeletal approach, they're extremely limited in what they can do. And so one of the easy things that you can do with tendon-driven robots that is harder actually with normal robots are handshakes. So a lot of handshaking. It's a very human interaction. And then actually because it's a soft musculoskeletal system, the handshake is really natural. You actually don't need to move the robot because the person shaking the hand is doing mm -hmm. that already. Whereas if you use a stiff industrial robot, you would actually have calculate trajectory and this natural mitigation and exchange of force when you do a handshake, it naturally in a musculoskeletal system and it's very awkward in a stiff robot because it's just not, it just doesn't, like you, you, you shake it and something is off. You never get the right kind of flexibility and springiness that you expect from a handshake from a human person. But that's one thing, of course. And then we experimented also a long time ago now with language models, trying to get people to talk to the robot. Then we've been experiencing it, putting fun use cases. So the robot obviously couldn't walk. So we put him on a rickshaw to drive around people as a student project. That was actually quite fun. 
we had it now driving the rickshaw. And of course, when you have a drive the rickshaw and it's becoming summer, it has to serve ice cream. So that was the next project. Mm. So we made it serve ice cream. And that's it's very hard if it's a musculoskeletal robot, and especially also using students' teams and not a team of seasoned roboticists. But I really always love this kind of flimsiness around it, this kind of obviously prototypiness. And uh, then we built the, the current robot, and that's when we started the whole telepresence approach. Explain what you mean by teleoperated. Like really, at all times, there's someone remotely operating these robots yeah. and embodying them through an avatar system. But there was this ANA Avatar X-Prize competition, and like we were like, oh, that's a perfect competition for us because it really fits into the strategic long-term vision. It's perfect. So we need to participate in it. And then this was actually shortly before the pandemic. And then early 2020, we started the pandemic hit, which also more or less killed our business model because we've been... You know, it's a, we had a cute robot to show. So that's how we funded ourselves. We basically went to events and showed off the robot on the robots and people paid us for that or to fairs in collaborations with corporates. But if there's no events in our corporates, that's really when we started to develop the, the telepresence system. So, so what would it be like, this experience for telepresence? Just give us an example of what that might look like. Basically, you just put on a VR headset and then when you play a VR game, you're usually the first person character. And it's exactly the same, except you're back in the real world. So you see in a remote world, you look around and the robot moves the head as well as you're moving it. So it really feels like you're looking around. And if you do a hand motion, it just copies this motion. So really grasping something or doing a handshake is more or less the same that you would do it like as if you're in your own body. Do a handshake mm. motion and through your eyes, how the robot is connecting and then there's a, your brain is pretty good in doing visual surveying. So to get the the hand where you want it to be. And, and you could be the other side of the world and you in, yeah. put into this body. And then what's it like for the people who are in the room with the robot body? They're seeing the robot. And what we've implemented is that it's very visible whether someone is in it or not. So it shuts down, I guess. And when someone comes in, it straightens and the face comes back on. So it's clear someone is here now to show presence. I think it's important. And then you hear the voice of the person. So that's really how the identification works. We're currently working on a way to depict the face of the operator. So you really see who's in there and who's operating it. And we're currently right. thinking about what's the best body that works around the technical constraints, but feels very natural for the person to interact. What kind of paradigm do we have that we are used to from our daily lives? Can we select? Um, to build a robot body that on the other side will feel very natural and non-threatening to the people. So we've been exploring quite a number of potential cases, like looking at them, how much revenue can you make, how big of a problem is it, also can you actually solve it with an easier system? I think many cases, especially industrial cases, mm. humanoid robot is regularly too complex. What's happening now, it's got an explosion of humanoid robot development right now. It's very cool. So there's Elon Musk with uh, building one and then figure and then uh, Aptronic. So there's many currently building these systems and they are hoping to leapfrog so far forward that the manufacturing complexity, if you scale it enough, is comes down enough in, in one step so that there's hopefully enough value 
for the generic system that the humanoid robot is. And I think whether this will work out, we'll see. Um, there has been quite some progress recently in terms of motion learning and things like this, but it's really hard to translate this stuff into the real world. Google just closed their home robot thing. And I think the everyday robot part, I think it's very difficult as a human not to fall into the Moravex paradox, underestimating the complexity of interaction with the environment. It's so easy for us, right? Like even a one-year-old child is capable of doing intelligent interaction with the environment. But we actually haven't solved this at all, how to get this to this ease. And there's some interesting hints now. And I think last week was an interesting paper by DeepMind where they've trained physical robots to play football in a surprisingly agile way. It was a very cool paper. I thought this was very impressive. But then if you think about productizing this, even if they are a bit better at this and get better and better, how do you constrain the system to prove it's safe? How do you, how do you handle the complexity of everyday environments? All our homes look different and they also change all the time. If you have kids, probably your, the map of your home is the same for about half an hour on average or something like that. So I think that's going to be a, a huge challenge. It's really one of the reasons also, I think these avatar systems that we're building have, they are way more feasible. They are way lower risk. They provide a lot of very important insight that can help us then ever to make these systems at least partially autonomous over time. And to come back to the use cases, that's exactly what we looked for. We look for a use case where People would spend at least 2,000 euros a month. Otherwise, I think it's really hard to make a humanoid viable. Where the fact that there's human on the other side is, is valuable, where automation is not imminent and it's not an easy replacement. Or you cannot just change that. You cannot just solve this problem by slightly adjusting the environment and then have an easier solution. And care really is a sweet spot for teleoperated robots, I think. It's the one place for where robotics will excel. I think it's a crack in the wall, but I might be wrong. Who knows? Because you touched on it there that often it's maybe just easier to change the environment and have more limited, strict rules about what the robot and the automation is doing by changing the environment rather than having a more independent, multi-movement robot. Yeah, so that's basically how we traditionally make robot use cases work, right? Mm. We reduce the variance the things that can happen to make it viable. And you think that there is this, one of the sweet spots for these multi-purpose humanoids is in the care area? As long uh, as they're teleoperated, yeah. Like for teleoperated, I think that's a great space. Are there any other kind of going more generally into kind of humanoids where you see potential that we might have some use cases in the not too distant future? I think if you look for super high value cases, space is an obvious answer. Sending humans to space is extremely expensive. Keeping humans in space alive is extremely expensive. So if you can have robots in space that do the work that needs to be done and maybe have them being partially teleoperated or also partially autonomous, that's where I see a lot of value. It's an obvious case. There's also with Kitai, a Japanese company that's really excelling at this and then amazing progress. Hmm. And another use case is probably underwater. There's from... One of the major universities, they are having a humanoid diving robot. I think that's also a great approach because it gives you a lot of dexterity to interact with the environment at the place you basically don't want to send a human to. 
We do a lot of things, especially in terms of resource extraction, laying cables and so on. There's a lot of things we do in the deep sea. So I think there's a good use case, also research. But both of those are not very new millions of the system. If we see who's currently deploying systems in what spaces, 1X, it used to be called Holodi from Norway. They are deploying in security and basically having a teleoperated robot that you can drive around. So the person cockpit basically doesn't have to go to leave the place where they still have their bird's eye view of the whole system. So they can drive a robot there. Then there's Teleexistence who's looking into retail use cases. I have all these small 7-Elevens and there's always a person, but sometimes mm. no, no customer shows up for two hours. But you have a person still in there. That might be some efficiency. And if you have a humanoid, you can do things like restocking and all these kind of interactions are necessary to keep this store afloat. It's interesting that these are the first viable cases because none of those are high paying. Having a human there for this amount of time, it's, it's you're competing against a quite strict capital barrier. And then I think the bigger thing that everyone is dreaming of is using it in industry, in manufacturing, maybe even in buildings, like construction. Construction is certainly a place where being lagged has advantages. So that might be an interesting thing. But it's a it's in a super complex space. Like right, typical construction site is a mess. Going back to your business and robodies and your grander vision, what if you could click your fingers and have some things happen now? What are the technological changes that would need to happen, or business changes to enable you to go to the vision of what you have for robodies? To go to the full vision, I think one of the major things we're missing is inactivation. Understanding, having a, an equivalent to muscle, like a contractile tissue that works over orders of magnitude, that would be game-changing because right now, even our most advanced robots are like based their, their motors connected through rigid links. And that very much limits in uh, the grace these systems can have and also how softly they can interact with the world. Even if you look at the Boston, at the Boston Dynamics Atlas, they can do amazing like somersaulting and interaction now, throwing bags, all these kind of things, but it's a hard system. So if you're in its way, that's going to be very painful. Whereas as a human, we kind of have a way of softly interact with, or so if you look at your pets or your dogs, the motion complexity they exhibit, a wagging tail, also what we do with our faces. So there's the fact that you have muscles, I think that's really would be a game changer towards. And then of course, I think getting to a point where we have way better ways of connecting the brain or the body to a robot. Because right now, vision is quite obvious because it's a very concentrated sense. We have our, our hearing, our vision, our smell is basically all head-based. But then we are very haptic creatures and it's very difficult to stimulate skin in a plausible way at the right frequency and densely over the whole body. How do you even do this? It's yeah. very hard. I think it's always so interesting to speak to people that are working on these problems intensely because we can draw some, for us in the sort of design community that we come from, to draw some, some learnings on how to think about these, the things that you've brought up with the design lens and draw some conclusions on principles. And I think you've really been very clear with how 
how you think about these issues. And that's really enlightening. I'm very happy that we got to speak to you about this. Yes. And please, if you're a designer, the robotics needs a lot more designer. If you look at the, even the cool looking current iterations, I think it's so far away from what we should be building. We really need more design in robots because I think the average roboticist is really in love with the tech side of things. It needs a bridging to to what these things should be doing and the way they're being perceived as the right kind of tool. It's the whole interaction design parts, motion design, the journey also of the, of the user journeys from how I might have the system to how does it arrive. Designing this part of the journey is super important, right? Mm. If someone's listening to this podcast and they want to find out more about Robodies and you, what's the best way? To- yeah, so of course, we have a website, devantro.com. DEV, like development, and then anthro, like the human. So that's the meaning of the company. And we're mostly active on LinkedIn. Just reach out. We're always happy to talk. You have been listening to Designing the Robot Revolution. If you want to help us, share this episode with a friend that you think will like it. Have a great day.